Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. And this is what the Lord, the word of the Lord says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is where the Lord. Let me, uh, let me open up with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this uh, gathering today. And we know that when your people uh, gather and worship to you and when we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, uh, uh, there is every uh, opportunity to experience your presence, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of us, maybe we feel like we're on empty, and we ask God that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with your word. And those of us, maybe we do feel like we are filled with your spirit, we, we pray, God, that you would increase that and help us to experience your presence all the more, to see with spiritual eyes, uh, to have desires of the Holy Spirit, that we might be a people who are walking in step with the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <coughs> Uh, you know, one of the things I've been trying to emphasize is when we were talking about spiritual gifts is spiritual gifts is not necessarily uh, the same as one spiritual character. And so a person can have an abundance of spiritual gifts and yet uh, their character has to develop because there's no, um, there's no exact correlation. And to walk in the Spirit is not simply a matter of using your gifts, but as we see in this passage, to walk in the Spirit is about crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires so that the Spirit may bear fruit in your lives. And that's going to be our focus today. Now, if you've never read the book of Galatians, one of the issues in the Galatian church is their understanding of the law, or from a Jewish perspective, the Torah. And Paul, he is correcting them with pretty strong language in, in Galatians chapter 1, and he tells them that they are, in fact, turning to a different gospel. The gospel is a message of grace, not ultimately a message of law. It's about freedom, not about bondage. And therefore, to preach a message of law and uh, it being enslaved to the law is the very thing that Jesus did not come to do. He came to free us from these things. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3.13, he says, When Jesus died on the cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now you might wonder, why would people in Galatia, why would they ever want to return to a system of law? Especially after hearing the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul and hearing about grace and hearing about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, why in the world would they now want to turn to their old ways, to the system of law? And I think uh, the human heart actually trends towards that direction. I do think deep within our hearts we are uh, legalists 
uh, rather than people of grace. And that's why I think uh, religious faiths that are based on uh, systems of law, that are built upon obedience, that are built upon uh, if you obey, if you do these things, if you pray five times, then you have fulfilled your duty to God. Uh, I do believe that there is an inherent attraction to those kinds of things. And one of the reasons why I think they are attractive is because if you're able to do it, then you actually feel pretty good about your own sense of righteousness. Uh, In a system of law, it's actually very easy to judge other people who fail and meet the requirements of that law so you can feel actually better about yourself and you can feel superior to them. In a system of law, power and control are valued because it's all about the final product. It's about how you look externally. There is this Catholic theologian, uh, I guess it's Henry Nouwen. I guess that's how you say his name. Uh, and he talks about temptation and power, and I thought he had this like, really insightful quote. And he says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power is an easy substitute for the hard task of love. And if you think about it, that's very true. Why are people drawn to power? Uh, it's, it's an easy way to avoid the hard task of actually loving somebody. You see, in a system of law, you don't need love, you don't need grace, uh, because if you have power, then you can use that power to control and get the desired results. Now, of course, I see this dynamic in relationships all the time. You probably experience at work. You probably experience it in your relationships. I see it a lot of times in couples. I see it in myself and how I relate to my wife and to my kids. I want you to imagine something. Uh, Imagine there's a couple, and uh, they're not married yet, so they're not living together, but they are having a disagreement about something. Uh, One person is saying, I don't feel like we are connecting enough, and the other person's like, but I feel like we are talking all the time. And so they start to fight about it. Now, how do they resolve that conflict? Well, in order to resolve that fight, uh, they create a law. And uh, one person says, okay, fine. If you think we need to connect more, how many times do you want me to call you in a day? And the other person says, uh, I think you should call me twice a day, once midday just to check in and once at night so we can catch up about our days. And the other person says, okay, fine. Uh, That's my expectation. I should call you twice a day. Now, here's what's going to happen. The person is going to call twice a day and fulfill that law, but he or she will not call more than twice a day, right? Because there's a limitation to obedience, that that's something that the law does. The law creates limits to love. But not only that, what is the tone of the call going to sound like? Maybe it's going to be like this. Hey, I'm just calling to check in. I don't have anything to say, but I'm just calling you because, not because I want to, but because I have to. And of course, if the other person detects that tone, then it's like, hey, this is not working, right? This law is not working. Can you imagine something? I just made that situation up. That, that didn't really happen. But can you imagine a scenario like that with different kinds of, uh, you know, different kinds of situations? Uh, many times, systems of law, I don't think, produce good fruit. Uh, I recently read a book about a theological controversy that took place in the 17th century around this issue of legalism. And the author said that there's, uh, there's usually two symptoms when it Uh, when there is uh, a system of law in place or when there's legalism. The first symptom is there's this kind of temperament 
temperament that can be described in this way. It's the kind of person who looks at their own life more favorably than others. It's a kind of person who has this critical spirit and always seems to be uh, judging others and tearing others down. I it's a kind of person who maybe lacks compassion or empathy for the failures of another person. It's a kind of person who easily looks at the faults of others rather their than their own faults. And the second symptom is this. It's a spirit of bondage and control. A legalist is going to want to use uh, the law to control or to manipulate the other person to doing what they think the right standard is. And oftentimes that is going to happen by making the other person feel unworthy through guilt and through shame. And if you've ever witnessed any kind of oppressive relationship, there is a good chance that the one who is oppressing will be legalistic at heart. But I think you actually run into, I don't know if I would say greater problems, but you run into more problems, not when the law doesn't work, but I actually think sometimes we run into problems when the law does work. You see, you create a system of law, and when you create those laws, it actually might preserve the relationship. Uh, if that person calls twice a day, it might actually work to eliminate that conflict, and the relationship is therefore preserved. But I think the standard of let's preserve the relationship is actually not God's standard. I think God wants more. It's not just about preserving relationship, but he wants complete flourishing. He wants there to be love. He wants there to be joy. He wants there to be grace. You know, I've been making salads. Uh, I went to Costco, and I buy this big thing of um, lettuce, and I've been making salads every day for lunch this week. And my oldest daughter, she was home from school like three days a week because she got pink eye. And so she saw like me making lunch every day. And she's like, you just, you ate that yesterday. I was like, yeah, I know. I eat it every day. Um, so I make a salad. And in the salad, you know, I have the lettuce. I have cherry tomatoes. I have carrots. And I have avocados. And that's what I eat for lunch every day. Now, when an avocado, uh, as I was thinking about this message, you know, you see where I get my inspiration. Uh, when an avocado is not ripe, it's, you know, kind of hard. And it doesn't taste that good. Uh, you could say, well, at least it's not a rotten avocado, and it is somewhat edible, but who wants to eat an avocado like that? It is not enough to preserve the avocado from getting rotten, but the best kind of avocado that you want is the one that grows and ripens and gets soft and is full of flavor and tastes good in a salad, right? When the law works, it's a little bit like saying you are satisfied with eating an avocado that is not ripe simply because it is not rotten. It's good enough to eat, but still, it isn't fully delicious. It isn't fully enjoyable. Where does that leave us with the law? That's what some of the Galatians are asking, right? They're saying, okay, if God wants more, if God wants fruit, and it's not just uh, this... Uh, preservation or not eating something rotten. Uh, okay, Paul, so you're saying that um, the law is not what ultimately justifies us. Then what do we do with that then, right? What do we do with the law? They are saying if you eliminate observance of the law, what happens to the role of obedience? If there is no law, then won't people just kind of do whatever they want to do and therefore there will just be greater lawlessness? Perhaps 
you've had that question as well, but that's not a new question. That's an age-old question when someone says, if the gospel is about grace, then how in the world is anybody going to change for the better? Why in the world would anybody want to do anything good? Um, If I don't get on my friend or spouse or my kids about meeting the standards of the law and becoming better people, then they are never going to grow, right? And even though we may not say this, maybe that's what's going on in our hearts. And I know my tactics are not great, um, especially in my parenting. Uh, But then, you know, deep and within my heart, I say, well, at least um, these things of control and using uh, fear and whatever it might be, at least these things will lead this person to become a better person. And how often do we do that in our relationship? You know, it might be true that a person will not change if, you, if there is no law, if you assume one thing, if you assume that there was no Holy Spirit, <laughs> if there is no person and work of the Holy Spirit. You see, what this passage is telling us is there is this deep uh, internal conflict that is happening between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Boom. Uh, then it says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, if you are not, if, I mean, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, when I, when I first read that verse, I, I read it a little bit differently than I see it now. I, I used to read that subjectively. So in other words, I used to think, think that this verse is about being guided by the Holy Spirit. It is my job to find where the Holy Spirit is and where the Holy Spirit is going, and I have to find him and follow him there under his guidance. But, you know, as I was studying this passage and reading some, some commentaries, uh, I realized that's the wrong emphasis on what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. The only other time where you see this phrase is actually in Romans chapter 8. And when Paul uses that phrase in Romans chapter 8, he says, those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. And the emphasis, it seems to be on this objective reality. If you are a child of God, in other words, if you are a believer, then you are led by the Holy Spirit. You see that? So the emphasis is not on us and what we do, but the emphasis is on what the Holy Spirit does to us. So it's not so much like the Holy Spirit is holding up the sign and saying, go that way, but it's more like the Holy Spirit is taking us by the hand and leading us and taking us to where he wants us to go. So that means if the Holy Spirit is in you, he is leading you, and therefore you will grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You see, it is not the law that will produce fruit, even though that's the simplest way to understand spiritual growth. It is the Spirit that dwells within us that is going to produce fruit in our lives. So again, this raises all sorts of questions uh, about our own, the role of our own efforts and uh, the role of obedience. And I think it's a good question that a lot of people have raised. But that's why I think the fruit metaphor is actually so helpful here. You know, verse 22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and then it lists things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, just think about the metaphor of fruit. Uh, The way fruit grows is through organic growth, and organic growth is different than other kinds of growth. Uh, For example, you you can take a pickup truck and say, I want my pickup truck to be larger and so let me change the tires and let me put some monster truck tires on it and boom the uh, the pickup truck uh, gets bigger 
but nothing has really fundamentally changed about the truck. It's kind of like external growth. It's just adding something on the outside. Agricultural growth is very different. Uh, if you've ever gone apple picking and you see an apple tree, uh, you know, the reason why I'm changing the metaphor from avocados to apple picking is because I've never seen an avocado tree. So uh, I'm going to be safe here. If you've ever seen an apple tree, uh, the apple tree starts off as like this tiny bud and it's an embryonic form. And as it grows, it's not just getting bigger in size, but there are complex fundamental changes that are happening to this apple. Uh, the, the flavor is changing. If you pick an apple when it's like this big, it's hard and it's sour. But as the apple grows, it starts to get sweeter, it starts to get juicier, it starts to get softer. In other words, it becomes more edible. And I think that's how we should probably understand how spiritual growth takes place. There's organic growth. You cannot just simply externally attach something good to yourself if there isn't fundamental change that is going on from within. It's a little bit like taking a, uh, I steal this illustration from a counseling class. You take an apple and it's like stapling it to the tree and there is no organic connection to that tree and what's gonna happen to that apple? it is going to die. It's cut off from the nutrients. It's cut off from the very things that give it life. When you live under the law, that is essentially how you are approaching spiritual growth. Uh, but when you are walking and living by the Spirit, growth happens much more organically. Growth happens much more completely. Your entire makeup is being transformed because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so when you look at this list in verses uh, 22 and 23, uh, probably what the average believer does is you turn it into a list of things that have to be achieved, right? So you look at this list and you say, do I have love? Check. Do I have joy? Check. Do I have peace? Check. Do I have patience? No, no patience. Got to work on that, right? That's probably how we look at lists like these. But when you see what, how Paul... Uh, list these things the interesting thing he says is uh he doesn't say these are the fruits of the spirit he uses a singular he says this is the fruit of the spirit uh, in other words when you are led by the spirit all of these things will grow within you it's not like you have one without the other but it's kind of a, a complete package it's a little bit like when an apple grows it is not as if the skin grows separately from the seeds on the inside. Uh, everything grows organically together because it's a single fruit. When we walk by the Spirit, we can expect to grow in all these things because God is transforming our hearts with the very power of the resurrection that is creating us anew. So what if, uh, you know, what if we don't see growth in these areas? Well, there's a couple solutions. One, uh, maybe you're not a believer, or maybe at least there's no assurance that you're a believer, uh, which is a possibility. But if you don't see growth in these areas, another possibility is this. Sometimes it's just hard to see that kind of growth because organic growth happens so gradually that if you stare at it, you don't always recognize that it's growing, right? If you stare at an apple on an apple tree, right, it just looks like it's the same. And then if you come back months later, that's when you realize, oh, this apple was growing the entire time. 
Even those of you who have children, you don't necessarily see your children growing, but it's only when you realize, oh, I got to buy more clothes because this, these clothes are too small. Or when you look at old photos of your kids and you're like, oh, they were so small and th they were so tiny that you realize growth has taken place. I think a lot of times spiritual growth is like that. And you, you look back and say, well, in the last two years, in the last five years, and you have this bigger picture, uh, I think we should say, I have grown spiritually uh, in some of these things. Uh, I am not perfect by all means, but I see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit within my heart growing me in these kinds of ways. Now, this passage talks a great deal about desires, and you have desires of the flesh, and you have desires of the spirit, and they are in conflict with one another. And conflicting desires, of course, happen all the time, even when it's not a clear uh, conflict of right and wrong. You might desire to have financial security in the world, but you might also have a desire to travel and to see the world. Well, maybe not today, but um, in normal circumstances, you might have that desire. You might desire to, um, in your work, you want to serve your clients well, but you might also have a desire to be home every day for dinner and eat with your family. Sometimes those desires are in conflict. You might have a desire if you are some kind of manager or boss and people are under your employee. You might have this desire that you want to be liked by your employees, but you might also have a desire that you want them to respect you and maybe fear you a little bit and do uh, what you tell them to do, right? Sometimes these, con these desires are in conflict. Now, which desire at the end of the day is going to win out? It is the desire that has greater power over us, right? If your desire is to be liked and that desire has greater power over you than your desire to get your employees to do what you tell them to do, then you probably won't fire them. You probably won't reprimand them. You see, in the flesh and spirit battle, the question is ultimately this. What has greater power over us, right? Here's the good news. The good news for us is that because of the work of Jesus, because of his death, and especially because of his resurrection, the spirit now dwells within us, and the spirit now has greater power power over us that's why the spirit will produce fruit in our lives by transforming our passions and our desires in this world there will always be this war taking place between our desires between desires of the flesh and desires of the spirit but the resurrected christ is the first fruits of the harvest to come and we are part of that harvest that is coming because we have the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who is resurrecting us and making us new. There's a theologian that once said this. He said, God never urges himself to be good. God never urges himself to be good. Do you know why? Because he is good. He is good. That's just who he is. That's, um, yeah, that's just who he is. His desire to do good comes from his being of being good. And I, I think that's probably the way that we ought to understand uh, ethics.